Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through. Keeping their delicate skin healthy and happy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick and goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable. When my oldest was little, she would get the worst diaper rash. It left me feeling so desperate to help her while also wanting something gentle on her skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor. When she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash, she let nothing get in her way. You can use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel confident that you are making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra-premium formula for moms that won't settle when it comes to their little ones. Soothe and restore with active ingredients being dimethicone and petrolatum. You can find more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com or find it on Amazon or walmart.com. You are listening to the VBAC Link Podcast. This is special episode number five. We have your list of questions that you asked on our social media platforms, and we can't wait to dive into them. Julie and I have been super excited to get these special episodes launched for you at the end of this year. And seriously, you guys, we really can't thank you enough for sending all of your questions in and emailing us, and we really are so excited to get going. Yeah, we are so excited. Guys, how have you been liking our special episode every Monday in December? We want to know. So go over to Instagram or Facebook, search for at the VBAC link or just the VBAC link if you're on Facebook and send us a message or leave a comment on one of our posts because we are excited to hear how you have been loving these special episodes. We kind of held on to We did one episode and then kind of just blew through the rest of season one. And so we're really excited to bring this season with so many special episodes. So without further ado, let's dive into it. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Monday. We hope that by this time of the month, all your Christmas shopping's done, all your sweets are baked, your tummies are full, and that you are just enjoying this time of year. We really, really love it. We love connecting with our families. We love connecting with you guys, and we've really been enjoying this season. Fill with our family and friends, and we hope you have too. And if you haven't, reach out to us because we want to be your friends too. So we have got some really awesome questions from our social media friends and I'm just going to turn over to Megan and we are going to just get right into it. All right. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, we really have some awesome questions. We really appreciate all of you guys messaging us like I mentioned before. Today we have, we'll start off with number one, question number one, and that's from Kimmy Dewell. 
and she says, what to look for in a VBAC-friendly provider, and how do you get over the fear of uterine rupture? Julie, would you like to answer that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. We've, we talk about this a lot on our blog and in our past episodes. So go back and look for those episodes. Um, it'll be in the title, How to Find a VBAC-Friendly Provider. I think we've got another one or two scheduled to come up for you right now as well. But I would love to just answer it nice, short, and sweet right here, right now. And thank you for submitting that question. I think it's very, very valuable and something people want to know. I say, gosh, oh, man, three things. You really want to look for three things or touch on them when you're talking or looking for a VBAC supportive provider. And the first thing that you want to know is you should ask open-ended questions about your birth. Don't just say, well, I want a VBAC and I want to go unmedicated and um, I don't want the eye ointment, but vitamin K is okay, but I, I don't want interventions and I definitely don't want to be induced. Um, would you support that? It is so easy for any provider to say, yeah, you can birth however you want. I will support whatever type of birth you want. We can do, we can do it. We can do that. I mean, I, I, my first birth was like that. I think Megan, um, you had an experience with a provider telling you that, right? And it just like didn't go that way. Yeah, actually, yeah. So, yes. So my first birth <laughs> kind of randomly, C-section was actually talked about in my first birth. And I don't, I don't even think I mentioned that in my story in episode two. My, so my family, my family has history of cesareans. And so I asked, hey, like, do you think I could have it, wouldn't need a cesarean? And he's like, oh, no, like, there's no reason, you know, you should be fine. And I was like, okay. And, you know, my mom pushed for a long time and was told she had CPD. And so I said, well, you know, is it possible I have CPD? And he goes, oh, a baby will never, a body will never make a baby bigger than a body can handle. And so I was like, okay, cool. And then he diagnosed me with CPD in my C-section. So I thought that was kind of interesting how he was like, yeah, no, that's like, nope, you should have no problem. And then that's totally what ended up happening. Yeah, we hear that so many times. Oh, my doctor did this. My doctor said that. But this is the reality. Your doctor can tell you whatever you want to hear. And I'm sure that they're in their minds. I don't think they're lying. Like, I generally, maybe there are some that are. But I think that, you know, until time comes or until you're pushing 41 weeks or until your labor is slower than what is textbook for normal and those type of things, then you know, that's where you start to get surprised and you start to feel like you got misled and things like that. So ask open-ended questions. And this is for anybody who is looking for a, a provider for any birth. But it's especially yeah. important for VBAC. Ask them what is their philosophy about VBAC. How does their policies and perception about VBAC differ from the hospital that they work under because sometimes hospital policy will be different than what the provider would like to do. And knowing what that is is important. Find out what their experience is with VBAC. Ask them what is their VBAC percentage rate? Like what percent of people come to them for a TOLAC and end up with a VBAC? And, and we know TOLAC means trial of labor after cesarean. So what percentage of people are actually successful with their VBACs and things like that. And in listening to them, 
How do you feel about inducing VBAC? Oh, that's another one because, oh man, this is one that just like so many people have such broad opinions on. Um, and, and a lot of it's just not backed by evidence. But listening to them and how they answer your open-ended questions will really give you a good idea in your mind and in your heart if they are going to be supportive of the birth that you want or not. So that's kind of my first rule. You know, ask those open-ended questions. Oh, my gosh. And also do it in their office, across the desk from them, while you're fully clothed. Ask for a consultation rather than a prenatal. Because being in the room, you know, on the table, clothed or unclothed or whatever it is, depending on your which prenatal visit you're at, you feel it's very vulnerable. And the doctor is the authority figure. It's just kind of the roles that you guys have. And if you can come at them across the desk, you will feel more like they're equal and actually in charge of what is happening to you. So that's another Definitely. tip for that. Another thing, and maybe you're about to mention this, um, another thing I think is really important to ask is, you know, what, how they view the long-term and short-term risks of a repeat cesarean. Yes. I had a client one time, her doctor told her specifically, yeah, I'm totally VBAC supportive. And then she said that exact question, well, what's the long-term and short-term of a repeat cesarean versus a VBAC? And he actually told her, well, there's really no risk for a cesarean, but if you want to be back, I'll a repeat cesarean, if you want to be back, I'll support you. And she was like, yeah. whoa, wait yeah. a minute. <laughs> You're telling me there's no risk for a cesarean at all? And so when she came to me and she said, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, how did you interpret that, that answer? And she said, I interpret it as he's not VBAC supportive and he'll let me Good. do, he says he'll let me do what I want to do. But in his mind, there's no risk in a repeat cesarean. So he's not going to think that's, you know, not a bad thing if that comes up to be what needs to happen. And so I was like, yeah, yeah. Interpreting those responses is so important and really asking not only how they view VBAC, but how they view cesarean. Because if mm -hmm. they view cesarean as no big deal, I don't know. It might it might be a red flag you want to pay attention to. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. That is really important. Uh, I could go on and on about stories and story, but I'm just going to get on with answering this question. Um, the second thing I would say to remember when looking for a VBAC supportive provider is what are their requirements? So if your provider says, oh, yeah, you can have a VBAC as long as you go into labor by 40 weeks, but if you don't go to labor by 40 weeks, we're going to do a repeat C-section because it's not safe to induce a VBAC and it's not safe for you to go past 40 weeks. And also, we want to have the epidural placed just in case you need a C-section. So that way, we don't have to put you under general anesthesia. And also, um, we want to make sure that your baby's not too big because if your baby's too big, you'll definitely need a C-section. And we want to make sure that, you know, your, your pelvis is big enough. So I'm going to look at your past records and just make sure that you weren't diagnosed with CPD. You know, you guys, is that sound like a VBAC supportive provider? No, no, it doesn't. It, that's none of those things that I said are, are true or based on evidence and science. And so generally speaking, the fewer requirements your provider has, the more VBAC supportive they are. So keep that in mind when you're talking to VBAC providers. And then the Definitely. third thing I would say is 
find out who works with them in their practice. Because if they work like on a rotating call schedule and they will only be at your birth if you're there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or half of Sunday, then you want to find out what the others in their practice views about VBAC are too. Because you could have one really VBAC supportive provider and nine others in a practice that aren't VBAC supportive. And only having a 10% chance of getting your specific provider at your birth might not want to be something that you take on when, when you're working towards something as important as a VBAC. So canceling with that, or there's a, a provider local here to us in uh, Salt Lake City who always, always, always attends his VBAC birth. Um, one yeah. of my clients I've heard say, there's like going to be like a 2% chance that I'm not at your birth. Because for a VBAC, he, the, like the hospital staff knows, his clients know, to have them call him so that he can come in. Because he knows that the providers, other providers in his practice are not as VBAC supportive uh, or even VBAC tolerant as he is. Yeah. So those are my three <laughs> suggestions. But Megan, I'm sure you have something to add. <laughs> Well, I really, one of the things that I was looking for when I was trying to go, when I was going for my VBAC was a provider that not only would see me prenatally, also deliver my baby. So if it's possible, I would encourage that, but we know that it's more and more rare as the days go on. These providers are getting in big groups and are seeing, they're seeing the moms prenatally, but whoever's on call is delivering. So that would definitely be one of my suggestions if you can. Find a provider who not only will see you in the office, but also deliver your baby. Yeah, perfect. And do you want to answer the next part of that question? Because I know you yeah. did a lot of work for this. So you, the next part, if you, if you guys forgot already, is how to get over the fear of uterine rupture. Yes. So this is definitely something that I worked hard on because when I was in the OR with my second daughter, which was my second C-section, my doctor actually said the words, I'm so glad you didn't VBAC because you would have ruptured. Your uterus is so thin. And unfortunately, that stuck with me. That stuck with me really, really strong. So during my journey, I would be feeling so good, you know, prepping and finding good providers and everything. And then in the back of my head, I would think, oh my gosh, but what if I rupture? What if something happens with my baby? Will my husband ever forgive me? Will I ever forgive myself? So I totally understand that. I've been there for many months, you know, doubting myself and, and trying to build myself up and having that fear. But really, mamas, we want you to know that, if I can say the word, statistically, <laughs> uterine rupture happens in only 0.4% of moms who are looking to VBAC. And really, I mean, that's, that's really low. That's less than 1%. And when I realized just how little my chances were, that helped me a lot. And when we were writing our amazing manual, <laughs> I seriously, I love Julie so much because she really does, when she says she loves statistics, and data. She really does. Just a <laughs> like, she really does. And so I'm just going to read you right out of our manual. You guys, you're just getting a little, little piece of our manual. It's kind of a fun little statistic of just the chances. You know, she's putting uterine rupture in perspective, I would say. 
So she says that in you have one in 216 chances that the person you are dating is going to be a millionaire. So one in 216. Now, with that 0.4% chance, that equals one in 240 that you're going, that you will have some sort of uterine dehiscence or rupture. I so should be dating a millionaire. Like how much people yeah. tell me about uterine rupture. Am I, I right? Know, right? Come on, guys. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, wow. And then, so let's see, you're, oh, one in, I love the one in 160, you ha- have better odds of being, or the odds of being audited by the IRS. You have one in 160 odds of being audited by the IRS. It's like, holy stinking cow, you guys. It's, uterine rupture is talked about so much. It really is. And that's, you know, that's the biggest thing that people talk about. Like, oh, you want a back? Well, you're probably going to rupture. Or what if you rupture? You know, and that is, it's, it's really important to know that it's so little of a chance that you're going to rupture. Do they happen? Yes, unfortunately they do. But really, I also wanted to mention that only 6% of uterine ruptures are actual complete ruptures or catastrophic. So we also talk about this in our class a lot. We talk about the types of ruptures, but only 6%. So, I mean, that's really low as well, really, really low. So what I would say is something that I did is, one, I got the facts, and it made me feel a lot better. But two, my provider, she literally talked me like, out into this like happy place every single time I, I saw her when I was feeling doubtful she would build me right back up and be like Megan we know that we know the risks we know the signs if that happens you know we're going to take it as it comes and we'll get you there to the safe place that you need to be and I I think kind of in the end is like okay like my provider my provider is is aware of my fears and she obviously is aware of you know, what uterine rupture looks like as well. So I knew, I felt comfortable. So getting that provider that is supportive and that you're comfortable with, knowing the risks, knowing the signs, all of those things, that helped me completely try and let go of that worry. Yeah, and that is so true. And just another quick statistic in case anybody was wondering so we know that 0.4% of tolax, which means trying for VBAC, end in a uterine rupture. And of those, 6% are catastrophic. And catastrophic means loss of infant life or maternal life. Maternal, maternal life, life is incredibly mm-hmm. rare, but still there. So just with that into perspective, that's one out of 762 tolax will end in loss of infant or maternal life. One in 762, okay? Guess what the neonatal mortality rate is in the United States. Neonatal mortality rate means how many infants die in childbirth. It's one in 172. That's one in 172 neonatal mortality rate. One in 762 neonatal mortality rate during TOLAC. So that means that you're five times more likely to have your infant pass away due to anything else besides TOLAC. 
just a little bit more perspective. Let let your mind just like sit on that for a little while and bring that with yeah. to your provider with you. And unfortunately, once your uterus ruptures, you're likely going to have to do a repeat C-section pretty quickly, depending on the severity of the rupture. But that would be a case where it would truly be necessary. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely would. And and really, our sign of uterine rupture before anything even gets to the point where it's catastrophic. So um, knowing that as well um, and learning those signs, like I, like I mentioned, we talk about those signs and, and the types of ruptures in our class as well. But really, it, it can bring you a lot of comfort if you know the signs and before you go into it so you can be like, okay, this is happening, you know, and then you can assess. And in case you guys didn't know, we have a shop, the VBAC shop. Go to thevbaclink.com slash shop. And we have a VBAC essentials guide. It's a digital download. It's $10. And it's an 11-page guide that goes over some of these things, like uterine rupture and what ACOG says about VBAC and how to find a good provider, how to find a good doula to support you on your VBAC journey. And... 100% of the proceeds from that, the sale of that goes to keep this podcast running for you. So it's like a twofer. You get to keep hearing us every week or sometimes (laughs) twice a week, like this week. And you get an awesome guide created just by Megan and I to help give you an extra leg up when you're preparing for your VBAC. Definitely. All right. So the next question is going to be kind of a quick question. This is from Millie Rose and Mummy. And she said, would you guys do podcasts with women in other countries? And just like to answer that as yes, if you have not heard, we have our, our episode 31, I believe. Does that sound right? Yep, 31. Um, and that mama, she's from Russia, and we have her on telling her VBAC story. So absolutely, if you're interested in sharing your VBAC story and you're from another country, you can email us through our website and fill out the form, and then we will be in touch to potentially be on the podcast. Yes, perfect. And we have a conference line. We just record all of these over phone lines. So anywhere you are, we can get to you. The website to go and submit your story is thevbacklink.com slash share. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, we're going to go into question number three. And this is from Melody Briars. And she says, are you allowed to have a VBAC with just a doula? So... She's mentioning that in her area, the closest midwives and birth centers are four hours away, and the hospital is not really something that's desirable. So we wanted to answer this question, and I'm going to turn it over to Julie. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is a tough one. Mm-hmm. You know, there in some parts of the country, and, and obviously some parts of the world, as we're learning more and more when we have people reach out to us, it is really, 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 really hard to find a VBAC supportive provider for you. And so what really sucks about that is it's forcing women who don't want to have a C-section to go what might be against medical advice for, for childbirth and for safe childbearing because we have such strict rules like VBAC bans and providers yeah. that, that won't support you. And so it's really, really tricky, and it does a great disservice for the women 
in our country and in the world when when these really really stinky attitudes about VBAC exists. It just it just does, and it's something that you know we're learning more and more each day. And so, gosh, to answer this question, are you allowed to have a VBAC with just a doula? Megan and I always say, trust your intuition. Trust your intuition. Trust your intuition in your heart. But sometimes your emotions and your logical mind can get in the way of your intuition. And so mm -hmm. I would never tell somebody if their intuition was telling them strongly to be back with just a doula present. I would, if their intuition is really strongly telling them that, I would not tell them to not listen to their intuition, but I would not be able to support them in their birth. And oh, as a doula, as a doula, yes, as a doula, yeah. yes, absolutely. So. Here's the thing. Uh, doula trainings and doula organizations, I have not heard of a single one that would say that it would be okay to support a client through an unassisted birth. An unassisted birth just simply means they're having a birth without the support of a provider or medical professional. And um, a lot of trainings actually strongly advise against that. And I would say that Megan and I would strongly advise against that too, just because, you know, we, we know, we just talked about uterine rupture is so incredibly rare. It is so incredibly rare. But when it does happen, it's really important that your baby gets out within, you know, 17 to 20 minutes, sometimes less, sometimes a little longer, depending on the severity of their rupture. But when you rupture, those that do rupture, you want to be able to get action taken quickly. You want to be able to have somebody that knows exactly what they're doing, and you want to be close enough and in contact with somebody that can help guide you safely through that rupture. So yeah. it's kind of complicated because, yes, you can, but should Le you? Legally. Yeah. I mean, like, legally you can. I, it's just, it's hard. Um, you know, four hours we had not somebody on our podcast episode, I think it's 29, Tabitha, who, who drove six hours to have her VBAC. And I've had a mm -hmm. client drive two and a half hours to a supportive hospital. And four hours is is a long way to drive. Uh I've been a midwife and yeah. birth center. It is a really long way, especially when you're going for prenatals and things like that. But I would suggest maybe establish dual care and dual care, whether the obstetrician knows about this or not, I guess it can really be up to you. But see if you're a midwife that's four hours away can support you if you see an OB that's closer to you throughout your pregnancy, and then maybe just do prenatals when it gets closer to the time of your birth. I mean, people have yeah. done that, and and there's a lot of limitations. I mean, there may be limitations and things that that are not convenient or, or things like that. But I, in my opinion, it, you know, my heart would tell me that it would be worth the four-hour drive just in case. And I'm not usually one to do something just in case. I don't like that answer. I like to see data and science and evidence, and you know this, and Megan's probably chuckling in her head right now. But, um, <laughs> but gosh, like it, you want to be able to, to have a provider that knows the warning signs. And, and doulas, they're not medical providers. They're, not, they're just yeah, not. We're not and trained. We're really yeah. not. And we're not. We're, we're not trained to support and educate. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and there might be a doula, and I know Megan and I, and, and we train doulas on supporting VBAC. 
we know how to find there to like notice the signs of rupture in a lot of cases or some cases you know we we would notice them before an OB would in a hospital but still you you want to be able to to be close enough to somebody who knows what to do in case of that emergency but if your mama heart is telling you strongly not to do that then you need to listen to that too because that is more important than what I say, what any midwife says, what any OB says, or what any other doula says. Your intuition in your heart will lead you better than anybody else. Right. And, and something too I would suggest is if that is the, the route that you choose, make sure that whoever, whatever doula you are looking to work with is aware that that is the plan. Um, for me specifically, like I mentioned, um, I unfortunately am not able or do not feel comfortable with unassisted home birth or unassisted birth in general. And so making sure that you're just open with your with your doula that you do hire and making sure she is comfortable, um, I think that's a very important thing as well. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So number four, we have blueberry teen mama and her question is i think or her question slash comment says i'm thinking about having a v-back with my next pregnancy and having a doula what are the complete benefits and is a v-back possible for plus size women so i would like to just start off with the second answer and saying yes absolutely a v-back is possible with plus for plus size women i have assisted some plus size women in their VAC and they were just fine. I think it is important to focus on nutrition, of course, in pregnancy and in exercise, but it is absolutely possible. Julie, have you experienced any plus size mamas with like VBAC as well? Heck yeah, I am a plus size mama. Three VBACs, plus size mama, BMI over 30. What, what? I've done it. I've done it three times. And, you know, the the, the VBAC calculator, oh, my gosh, we talk about that a lot um, yes. in, our, in our class, but the VBAC calculator will automatically drop your chances of having a successful VBAC if your BMI is 30 or higher. And it does that for based on a population sample size of 7,000, but didn't really take into consideration anything else, like how these women were treated, whether they had any other complications and things like that. So the VBAC calculator in general is kind of not very reliable set of data, but guys, I mean, I don't think that just being a plus size mama is a good reason to not VBAC. It's just not backed up by science. And if you have a provider that, that's going to talk to you about that or talk to you in a condescending way related to your weight, then you might want to consider a second not be a or finding another provider. Yeah, they might not be yeah. VBAC supportive. Definitely. And um, so her next question was, you know, what are what are the stats on, on a doula? So in our class, and I would say probably on our podcast and on our Instagram and pretty much everywhere we go, you guys, we preach doulas. We are doulas, so yeah, maybe we're biased, but I don't know. There's some there's some evidence to back us up, and I mean, I know from my feedback, and I, I know for a fact for Julie's feedback, our doulas largely impacted our births, and I think that having a doula is incredibly an incredible smart idea if you can have a doula 
So we talk about doulas as well a lot, like I said, in our class. And we have a lovely study from Evidence-Based Birth. Julie, do you go on that Evidence-Based Birth a lot? I feel like you probably do. Yeah, I like that website. She's always up on. Yeah. Yeah, the study actually isn't um, from Evidence-Based Birth. They did a really thorough review of it, and and I really love that. Yeah. Yeah, I I guess that's kind of where I pull it from. I always go to her her birth because she is up to date on so many evidence-based facts. So she talks about, and this is this is straight from this study that we're talking about, and it's in, it's a study that includes more than fifteen thousand people, and it was done with twenty six trials on continuous support of labor, women in labor, and it talks about that there um, doulas and you know, other family members and everything. And it says 25% decrease in the risk of a cesarean and the largest effect was seen with a doula at 39% decrease. 39% decrease. You guys, that's huge. That's, it's huge. And I would say that my doulas for sure helped me. Julie, what would you say? I mean, I feel like they helped me more than 39%, you know, but how would you say your doulas helped you? Yeah, oh my gosh, you know, my my first the doula that I had for my first VBAC, oh my gosh, like I was probably the most difficult client because I swear I would talk to her every single day. I would talk through my fears. She had a VBAC herself, which is really important to me that I had somebody that had gone through it and Oh my gosh, just the support, the emotional support. Like it's it's funny because I I call her my security blanket when when I went into labor. Like things were still, you know, like contractions were still, you know, they were consistent, and I was like getting ready because my first VBAC baby was born on my sister in law's wedding day. So like while they were getting married, I was pushing, and you know, but like I was like blow drying my hair because I was adamant that I was going to go to this wedding still. So I called my doula, you know, and she was like, well, I'll just come over and check on you. And she came over and it's like my, like my body and my mind knew it was time to get out into business because contractions, just, they, you know, they intensity increased. They got closer together. Like it was just like she was there. And so I was safe. That was like my safe environment. It was like, fine, it's time to do this. And she made a big difference. More so, I think, emotionally than physically. But I think that... That's one of the biggest jobs that a doula does is helps you gain yeah. that confidence and that big emotional support. Definitely. And not only us as the laboring moms, but my husband felt so supported and comfortable while we were laboring for a really long time. And I will just give so much credit to my doulas. My doulas, they let him know that it was okay, that it was normal, that you know, the ne- what the next signs would be. So when he saw the next signs, he wasn't scared. So I, I just can't get enough of doulas. And not only during the labor, but leading up to labor, we meet with our pregnant mamas and dads and whoever's on the, the birth team is encouraged to be there. But we meet with them and we educate them prenatally. We get to know them better. We learn their triggers. We learn their their fears and how we can help them through it. And we process through those fears and and those worries before even entering the birth space. And we also teach these birth partners, you know, how to do counter pressure and how to do the rebozo and 
how to do a side sims and how to work a peanut ball. And there's so much education that comes even before the labor and delivery that a doula can really help a birthing couple. And then, of course, also in the postpartum stages, so many people think, oh, like, when, when the baby's born, I leave, they're like, oh, I guess, you know, our services end right here. I'm like, absolutely not. They do not end right here. You guys, I am with my couples, or I'm there for my couples 100% all the time. Anytime they need me after, you know, obviously if it's 1 a.m. and they've already had their baby, I might get back to them in the morning. But if they're writing me and saying, hey, like, I have a breastfeeding question, or do you know someone that can help me with breastfeeding, I'm going to help them get them the right resource and help them feel more comfortable with what's happening. So also do is help a lot in the postpartum stages as well. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, so we are at question number five, and this is from Gypsy Jam. And her question says, are there any different recommendations for a VBAC, attempting a VBAC after two C-sections compared to someone that has had a VBAC after one C-section, or going for a VBAC after one C-section? And, you know, going, and I'm sure Julie's probably got her stats all pulled up here um, <laughs> with, <laughs> with multiple uh, C-sections. Do you, Julie? Am I, am I just, just thinking you do and you don't, or <laughs> do you have your no. stats? <laughs> I don't, but it's because I have them memorized. Memorized in your head. It's really easy. You just, you just giggled. I could hear you like, Exactly. She's got, she's got everything. She knows, you she know knows what she wants to say. <laughs> um, go ahead. Go ahead and share. You know, guys, oh, my gosh, I'm going to do a lot of talking. And the talking that I'm going to do is based on science, evidence, studies, data, statistics, all of those things. And if you want links to the sources that I learned from, you need to go to our blog, the vbacklink.com slash blog. We have two articles, one on VBAC after two C-sections and one on VBAC after three or more. Multiple. It's called v yeah, VBAC after multiple C-sections. And, oh, my goodness, people freak out about VBAC. But if you think people freak out about VBAC, oh, my Gosh, you have not seen anything until you've seen someone freak out after two, three, or multiple four C-sections. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you guys, it's it's nuts. We see it all the time. There's so it much fear surrounding yeah. VBAC after two or more C-sections, and it's extra hard to find a supportive provider. But this is the thing: there is not one study to show a increase in risk for rupture that is greater than one and a half percent. Now that's, I'm, I'm talking, you might be scared of that number, but hold tight before you get scared for just a second, because you know, we've already said the risk for rupture is 0.4 percent. That's just the risk for rupture overall, okay? Mm-hmm, yeah. But there's a collection of studies. There's, oh, I don't know, seven or eight, if I remember right, referenced on our blog and that I pulled from that have happened since 1995 that show a range of rupture in different population group sizes. One group had a 0% rupture rate in VBAC after three or more C-sections. Zero moms. I think the total number of moms was only about 502 or 501 moms. But guys, 
that's less of a rupture rate than after just one C-section. I'm not saying that it's, that it's necessarily safer to have three before you try for your VBAC because we definitely don't want that. But, but guys, the, the highest percentage study had a 1.5% rupture rate. So, and then the, the other five, four or five were somewhere in the middle between 0% and 1.5% risk for rupture, period. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So there is yep. no there is no evidence. Even even ACOG says any rupture risk that is less than two percent is an acceptable risk, medically speaking. Now what is acceptable for you as a mother might be different and that is okay. We want you to trust and honor those feelings. But freaking out and saying it significantly increases your chances or that you'll definitely rupture or that it's completely unsafe are all fear-based statements not backed up by any kind of science or data. Now, it's really hard because there's not a lot of studies and evidence out there for three or more C-sections, you know, um, for a VBAC after three or more C-sections is what I mean because most women aren't given the chance. You know, we, no, uh, I mean, we have a hard yeah. enough time getting the chance after just one C-section. But guys, the more women that are educated and speak up for themselves, I mean, we just had episode 29, Tabitha had a VBAC after four C-sections. She had two VBACs. Episode number, Megan's is number two. Um, episode number five, I think, is our friend from Canada who had a breach VBAC after two C-sections. We mm -hmm. have several episodes talking about that, and we have even more coming up. We have we have a mom who coming up in January who had a C section after or a V back after two C sections with a classical scar, which is the vertical yeah. incision. And guys, educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself because the more educated you are, your little voice is going to make this ripple of change. Going to echo. It's yeah. going to echo. Yep. And more women are going to, are going to educate themselves and stand up and more women and more women and more women. And we're at this cusp of the world, like changing to be a more VBAC supportive world. And it starts with you. It starts with you. The person listening right now starts this change. We are starting it and it is, and it is working and we are seeing it. And, and I must step off my soapbox. If you want to know more and you want to learn about the studies, I have a lot of soapboxes, right, Megan? <laughs> if you want to yes. learn more, go to our blog, thevbacklink.com slash blog. Lots of good info there. Do a search for VBAC after two C-sections and VBAC after MC. So VBAC after multiple C-sections. And you can find all that studies. Yes, and also kind of bouncing back to that last question in that exact blog, it's that's titled Seven Surprising Studies on VBAMC. That, that's vaginal birth after multiple cesareans. There's actually a study in there for plus-size pregnancy as well. So yes. if you want to know more about that, head over to that blog, look for that. And we will also be linking all the blogs that we're talking about in the show notes today as well. So if you can't remember or you want an easy way, click on the show notes and we will have those links for you. Okay, so we're down to number six. And this is Delilah George. And she says, how can I prepare for a VBAC before getting pregnant? And what are some exercises and food habits that I can practice? 
Megan, this so, question is perfect for you. <laughs> Megan is like the nutrition and exercise guru, and I'm just going to shut up now and let her talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, something for, so I will tell you a little bit about my VBAC. Well, I was prepping for my VBAC after my two C-sections. First of all, nutrition has always been big to me and exercise has always been big to me. My first pregnancy, I <laughs> I just ate Chinese food all of the time. My husband worked from 2 to 10, and so I would just stop on my way home from work and get some Chinese food and hang out and watch Tia and Tamara because, yes, that's a guilty pleasure of mine. I love hey, Tia and Tamara. <laughs> I do too. So I would literally just go home and eat Chinese food. I started running right before I got pregnant, and I had some round ligament pain, and my doctor said, oh, you shouldn't run. You shouldn't really do anything. You weren't running long enough before you got pregnant. And I was like, oh, okay. So I just totally was like, oh, I don't have to work out. I don't have to do anything. And I just really didn't take good care of myself. And so with my second and my third, it was really, really, really important to me. So I started teaching a fitness class and becoming more aware of what to eat, what to do during pregnancy and, and leading up and even after pregnancy. So going back, because I kind of backtracked, but while I was pregnant with my third baby, maybe back after two C-section baby, I was trying really hard to watch my nutrition because I actually get kidney stones when I'm pregnant. Got them oh, with baby one and baby two. Yeah, yeah, really, 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 really rough. <laughs> so I was seriously like determined not to get kidney stones with my third baby because in my head I think I related kidney stones to some things that happened in my labor and so I you know I really paid attention and I will just say that I focus so much on protein so a pregnant woman should get anywhere from six to six and a half ounces daily of protein. That's a minimum of 60 grams of protein per day, which really is not a lot. For anyone out there that counts macros, I'm a macro counter, that's like nothing. So 60 grams of protein, and it can be chicken, tuna, salmon, milk, eggs, you know, seeds and nuts. It's amazing how many things have protein. So trying to really beef up your protein and your vegetables. Earlier, Julie and I were talking about vegetables and she's like yeah I think when we were going over the question she's like I could just say what did you say Julie those green I things said, that grow in the ground yeah I said eat stuff like this is my nutrition advice because Megan's so much better at this than I am Whatever. my nutrition advice is eat things that are green but only green things that grow from the ground <laughs> that's it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I will agree with her eating green things green 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 obviously there's tons of different types of vegetables out there like sweet potatoes sweet potatoes are not green but they're really good for you they've got really high vitamin a and vitamin c and a whole bunch of other minerals and so spinach um you could do spinach smoothies with fruit good fruit kale you can add that into your into your smoothies you know green beans broccoli Brussels sprouts, all those types of things, those are really, really good vegetables to have, and you should have three to three and a half cups a day. Fruits. Now, I love fruit. I love sugar, really anything sugar, um, especially if it's Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> um, fruit is so important as well. 
but you don't have to have as much fruit as you may think. But really getting a good amount of fruit, and it can really be anything, but really um, the blueberries, the bananas, the grapefruit, the citrus stuff, kiwis, those are really, really good. And they also help with moms who have maybe have had preeclampsia. I don't know if you've ever heard and like high blood pressure, but grapefruit actually helps with blood pressure. So and lemon. Um, it's like, I know that. Yes. Lemon does too. And lemon. Like yes, lemon water? Lemon. Mm-hmm. Yep, and grapefruit water. So if you can yep. cut a piece of grapefruit and put it in your water every day, it's fantastic. And then really healthy grains, you guys. I am a big fan of still-cut oatmeal, but really any oatmeal, obviously whole grain bread and cereal, English muffins, brownies, or brownies, ha-ha-ha, <laughs> brownies. <laughs> Look at my head. Look at my head. I was going to say pancakes. Um, a whole grain. Oh, we all know pieces. you love your brownies. <laughs> I do. I can't get enough. I can't get enough. So I said brownies earlier, and obviously I need to go get a brownie after this because I must want a brownie now. And then really good dairy, you guys. Cottage cheese, cottage cheese pancakes. You know, I should blog one day about that and give you guys my recipe because it's amazing. I give it to all my clients when they're in early labor. Cottage cheese pancakes. Seriously, they're amazing. And I don't even like cottage cheese. You know, Greek yogurts, things like that. So all of these types of things, really, if you can, you can get a good, balanced nutrition before you get pregnant and then carry that on through pregnancy and carry that on postpartumly, it's going to, it really is going to greatly benefit you. And then fitness. So I totally, <laughs> right before doula work kind of got busy, I started a YouTube channel for exercise. Italy, um, and during, you know, while you're trying to get pregnant and postpartum. So I've got a couple exercises on that. But obviously, really knowing what your body can handle as well. You know, my friend, she can go into the gym and just lift like a whole bunch of weights. And I can lift weights, but not as heavy. And I know that if I push too hard, that's not going to help me. So following what you need to do, is what's going to be best but pilates swimming yoga um, i mentioned i took i used to teach a bar class if you can find a bar class it's really low impact on your joints that one's great before you're pregnant during your pregnant and after you're pregnant you know light cardio pilates did i say that one i don't even know seriously so many of those workouts are so good and you guys youtube youtube really is our best friend there are so many free ideas out there so google things like healthy workouts during pregnancy or good workouts to do pre-pregnancy and you guys are going to find a bunch so that is what I would recommend it go check out YouTube if you want we will I'll post a link to my my page I only have a couple workouts on there because I kind of got busy and totally did not record as much as I wanted to but you can go check out some of those videos and um if I can answer your question the question Julie does that I yeah, <laughs> that's great. I, I know that's really good. I think those are all great things. And, and here's why. When your body is in optimal health, then you are going to have a much easier time during pregnancy, during delivery. It's like you're, you're giving your body Definitely. all the right nutrition that it needs to work properly. And a properly working body is essential to have you know, an uncomplicated birth because you want things to be able to progress naturally. You want your body to have all the energy and right sources of nutrients that it needs in order to progress normally through the natural process of labor and delivery. And so 
even if, you know, every time we talk about nutrition, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to get better, I need to get better. But this is the thing, you don't have to make a big change all at once. Just start by no. adding more things, to, like more healthy things. Don't take anything out. Like that's kind of what I'm turkey on right now. I just like make a nice green salad for lunch and I put my romaine lettuce hearts and carrots and celery and, you know, whatever else I have in the house. And then, and then I load up with some Monterey Jack cheese and some ranch dressing and some croutons, which is not necessarily the healthiest, but I have hey, all my cheese has protein. Cheese is good. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Not Probably not the amounts of cheese that I like to eat on my salad, but <laughs> but we all have our guilty pleasure. You know what I mean? So so don't, don't worry about taking anything out. Just add in the good stuff, and the good stuff is going to yeah. help a, a lot. Right. And and like she said, like don't overwhelm yourself. It is important not to push yourself and overwhelm yourself too much because if you do, it's not going to be something that you're going to want to keep coming back to. And another thing that I would just like to mention is hydration. Hydration is seriously so important. We lose water every day. And especially when we're pregnant, our, our bodies are working while we're pregnant. Like we're just sitting there and our bodies working, right? It's growing a baby. So it is so important to drink water every single day. Don't forget to stay hydrated. And then one of my last tips would be a pelvic floor specialist. So prenatally, or not prenatally, before you're pregnant, I should say, it, it might be a really good idea to get into a pelvic floor specialist because they're going to not only give you really good ideas and tips on exercises before you're pregnant, when you're pregnant and after you're pregnant, but they also can help recognize and help you start training your pelvic floor muscles before you're even pregnant. So when you are going in for your VBAC, your pelvic floor is nice and primed and ready because crazy enough, your pelvic floor can affect the birth. And so if we can prepare our pelvic floor with the rest of our body, it's going to truly benefit us. All right, we only have two more questions left. I can't believe it. We are at question number seven, and this is from VM88NEZ, and she says, how do you handle a difficult doctor? You ladies sometimes have to be in the voice of these mothers in labor. How do you find the courage to tell a doctor no? And how do you deal with the doctors and nurses who give you attitude because you are fighting for your mama's voice to be heard? And, man... There's been so many times. I mean, I know Julie mentioned it too, where we know what our client is wanting and someone from the staff comes in and truly kind of disregards, would you say, Julie, like completely Mm -hmm. disregards their feelings. And it's hard. It's hard as a doula. Do you want to explain or give an example? I know you've got so many, Julie, of how, how you have stood up for your mom without stepping outside of the scope of a doula. Oh, gosh. You know, this is kind of, not really a tricky one, but, I mean, the more experience you have as a doula, the more you'll learn, like, how it works best for you as your doula, as a doula. But one thing we, I just kind of want to talk about we don't want to do first is we don't want to be in your labor and birth room fighting 
We don't want to fight with anybody. No. We want to love mm -hmm. everybody. We want to be support. We want to be nice and, and cohesive with the rest of the people at your birth team because we don't want to create an environment where everybody walks into your birth room preparing for a fight with the loud, obnoxious doula because, unfortunately, that happens sometimes. You know, if, if I say, oh, but she doesn't want to be in front of her. Well, I know you said don't move, but um, we need to move her. And I know you said don't eat, but I brought a cheeseburger because this girl needs to eat. And all of those things might be true. But the way you present yourself is a big impact on how the entire staff treats the laboring mother. And so... Yep. So first of all, if we have a difficult doctor, we want to find that out before labor begins and, and fix it, whether that's by having an honest conversation with the provider. And I don't mean me as a doula. I mean my clients. You know, encouraging that honest, open communication, expressing your birth desires, getting rid of a provider that's not supportive with what you want for your birth. But if it comes down to it and you have a, either a different doctor at the birth or, or a doctor that's doing the bait and switch, we, we we want to just, we want to interact in a way that is productive for everybody. And so I'm going to tell a couple different stories to kind of explain that. So first story is I have a, a VBAC client actually have some oh, bleeding at around 32, 33 weeks um, gestation. And she went to the hospital and, you know, she wasn't really in labor, but I was talking to her husband on the phone. I could tell that, like, they just needed a different energy in their space because they were really stressed out. So I went up there just to be with them and sit with them in their space for a little while. And I knew that she was a VBAC, obviously. <laughs> I knew what the problems were obviously, and I knew how a, how a hospital staff would typically respond to that, um, which means like they would probably want her to, to be still and not moving around. They want to make sure the baby's heart rate's good, that the bleeding doesn't get worse. They want to, probably don't want her to eating or drinking, and so I went to the gas station and got some smoothie, high-calorie smoothie, high-protein smoothie drinks um, that I like to bring with me to birth and just kind of like snuck them in in my little backpack and the first thing I did before I even went up to the mother or into her room at all is I went to the nurse's desk and I said, hey, I am this person's doula. I want to make sure that I'm operating within the boundaries that you guys have set based on her specific uh, health concerns right now. So, I mean, I want to bring in some good energy and I want to get her, you know, moving around if, if we can, but also I don't want to, I don't want to put her in a position that might not be good. And so then the nurse was like, oh yeah, well, let's go find her nurse. And her nurse was actually in the room with her. So I walk in and then I'm like, hi, my name is Julie. I'm this family's doula and I'm here to like just help bring support and, and help these guys get in a little better spirits. What are the restrictions that we, that we have so that I make sure that I'm not stepping over my boundaries? And so she told us, yeah, we don't want her moving. We want to make sure we have constant fetal monitoring, no eating or drinking, only ice chips. And it's funny because you know, she was telling me that very authoritatively, like almost like she was almost ready for a confrontation. And I was like, okay, great. So no problem. So it's okay if like I get out my face 10 cards and, you know, and we just like talk and just make sure that like I stay out of the way when you guys come in to do checks and stuff. And she's like, yeah, that'd be great. So she left. And it's funny because my client just told me um, the other day, she's like, it was so funny because 
The nurse, before you got there, was so nice and happy and friendly that as soon as you came in, her demeanor changed. And, like, did you see how she talked to you? It was like she was getting ready for a fight. And I was like, oh, I didn't really notice that. And she's like, yeah, she did. But as soon as you, like, explained yourself and, and that you wanted to work with her and not against her, she was back to being happy again. And I think that's important because, you know, we did sneak a little drink of some smoothie. <laughs> but, you know, we made sure that we did it when the nurses weren't there because, you know, we knew her, she was hungry and we knew that that particular hospital hadn't caught up to current guidelines yet for eating and drinking. And, and you know, we knew she wasn't, we, she probably wasn't going to have her baby that day. But I made sure not to move her. I made sure that, like, um, if there was a question, I would go out and ask the nurse in a nice and polite way. And that's really important. You guys, oh, my gosh, it's doulas, doulas. If you are listening to this podcast, it is so important that you make nice with the hospital staff. And I don't care if you hate the nurse or hate the doctor. I've been there. Megan's been there. You, it doesn't matter how you feel about the hospital staff. It's important to be nice and cordial and, and understand that they have a job to do, too. And they're probably not trying to do anything wrong, but... They might not be as educated on, like, the natural unhindered birth process because, you know, hospitals tend to just connect you to all the things as soon as you get in there. So the second story I want to tell is it's important as doulas, like, at least with me, and I know Megan too, that we make a connection with the birth partner. I mean, typically it's the husband, but it might be the wife if, if you're in uh, that type of relationship or two dads if there's a intended parents for a surrogacy or adoption birth or things like that. You want to make sure that you are aware and know their birth partner. Maybe it's her mom. Maybe it's her sister or aunt or brother. I don't know. Whoever. Because when it comes to the point where her wants and needs are not being heard or understood or followed, a gentle nudge to the birth partner who you've already communicated with and who already knows what this laboring woman wants can be the one to stand up and demand anything because it's so much better coming from the birth partner or the laboring woman than it is coming from the doula. So oftentimes, I'll just, uh, I had a birth a few weeks back where a laboring mother wanted to push on her hands and knees and the doctor comes in and he talked to the nurse and he was like, she's not going to deliver like that, is she? And then the nurse was like, oh, well, yeah, we, we'll put her on her back. You know, and then the nurse said to me, you know, like, she's, he wants her on her back to push. And so, like, I walked around the bed to the husband and I said, I just whispered to him, you know, it was after the nurse had left and everything like that, and I said, if she wants to deliver other than on her back, you guys are really going to have to fight for it. And so that set the precedence for him based on what I had heard from her provider. I didn't go up in the provider's face and say, hey, she can push however she wants to push because we know that pushing on her back is not effective and it's more likely to increase tears and we're not going to do that. Like, I didn't do that. I went to the, to, the, to the partner and I said, if this is what you want, you are going to have to fight for it. And then they knew. And she ended up pushing up on her back anyways just because that's what they decided that they wanted at the time after all was said and done. But addressing it and establishing a good relationship, establishing a good plan, being aware of what the laboring mother wants, knowing what her preferences are, communicating with her partner and knowing and so that he knows 
that you can keep an eye out for all the other things going on in the room and that he knows that if there's an issue or there's a problem or, or somebody's going to do something that you hear that the client doesn't want or his wife doesn't want or her daughter or whoever it is, that he or she can stand up for that person. And, you know, I very rarely will I interrupt and say, hey, this, but like in an instance of like uh, cutting the cord almost immediately, oh, wait, she wanted delayed cord clamping, you know, or, or things like that. But it's always after I've already had a good relationship. I'm happy with all the people, and I, and I create a sense of trust between everybody in the room. And that is what facilitates a good relationship and effective change for these women. Wow, that was a really long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great, though. It's great. And, you know, something, and I'm kind of just going to lead this right into the next question because it's it's pretty relative. Uh, it says, how do you respond to a medical professional's negative opinion or comments of natural childbirth or their birth choices? So I kind of feel like this one kind of goes right into that yeah. as well. But, you know, there are many times I, <laughs> I had one birth, not even a VBAC birth, and she had no desire to actually go unmedicated for this one. But when she, when doctor walked in, he's like, oh, I forgot, you hired a doula for whatever reason. And I was like, whoa, my gosh. Like, really? And he goes, oh, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I guess there's benefits to doulas, but I don't really understand why you're here when she wants an epidural. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. And, you know what? And, like, pretty rude comment, right? Like, pretty yeah. directly to both of us. And, and I just said, actually, there's quite a bit of births that I go to where I, unmedicated wasn't desired. However, that emotional and physical support and educational support is. And he goes, oh, yeah, like, I guess I can see that. So it's, it's so interesting how some providers are, and they don't really understand why we're there. They don't really understand what a doula does. So kind of something that I do really is um, I like to play really nice <laughs> to my providers, even yes. if I don't like them. And to the nurses, you guys, these nurses, sometimes you'll get a nurse and they'll come in and they're like, oh, we love doulas. Oh, you're so awesome. Thank you so much. A lot of them times they'll say, oh, you make my job easy. And then sometimes there's, there's nurses and doctors and they're just like, ew, don't like doulas. Like you're, for some reason they feel threatened sometimes. Like they think we're there to do their job, which is totally incorrect. And so something that I like to do is really just, friend them. So yes. I know how to read. I know how to read a monitor at this point, right? I've been doing this for a long time. I've run, you know, over 150 births. Well, actually not at this point. I guess at this point I'll be like, man, it's like 148. So over 100 births, I'll say. But truly, I, I understand how to read it. And sometimes when a nurse comes in, I'll say, hey, so can you tell me what this, what this means? Or what does that mean with the baby? You know, and I kind of, like, play silly. And those nurses and doctors, they, it's like, oh, like, I get to tell her how this is. Like, it's just so silly. But, you know, it's, like, crazy what our minds do. And they'll be like, oh, this. And then they'll, like, show me. And then all of a sudden, I have full respect. Yes. Full respect That's what I that said. I before. And it yeah. lets them know that you respect them and their yep. boundaries. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I, I do. I would say I do as well. But I friend I friend my nurses and my staff, um, no matter who it is, especially the anesthesiologist. Um, oh, yes. I, I, 
I butter them up. <laughs> so, you know, and how do we respond to the professional's negative opinions or comments on natural childbirth? Like Julie said, you know, we're going to find out about these providers a little bit before this we even enter that space. I, I did have a mom one time where she, the doctor actually told her, well, I guess if you're going to hire a doula, you think your husband's inadequate. And so I knew right away in that prenatal that I was going to be going up against a doctor who did not support, one, having a doula, and two, she wanted an unmedicated birth. And he said, oh, man, if I was a pregnant mom, I'd get an epidural the second I got pregnant. So very, very clear, you know, that he did not support her desires and her choices that she was making in birth. And so, again, it goes back to that buttering, buttering up that staff. It, it sounds so silly, but if we can, we can do that. It truly does help them. And then when there is something to be addressed, I kind of stay quiet and then the staff leaves as well. And then I go over that with my client. So that's kind of how I would answer it as well. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that that is like indicative of a good doula. You know, I had one client years ago when I was first starting out not hire me because I told her I would not advocate for her in the birth room. I'm like, trust me, you do not want a doula that's going to stand up and advocate for you in the birth room. You don't want that because it's going to piss everybody off. It's just going to piss everybody off. But I said, but I will teach you how to advocate for yourself. I will help your partner know what to do. I will keep my eye out like a hawk and I know how to analyze birth space. I, I will help him and you know where, what, you know, things might be coming up if I see them and I will tell you so that you can send up for yourself. And she didn't hire me because she wanted somebody that would, you know, do all that work for her. And I can kind of see where that's coming from, but, oh, it's really just not a good precedence to set. And not only that, but, like, if you have a doula doing that in the birth space, it leaves a bad taste in provider and nurses' mouths about doulas. doulas. Yeah, and then it takes 10 more good experiences to fix that one bad experience, you know, that somebody had. So, right. Well, and another thing, too, is, you know, a lot of the times, and and I'll I'll admit it, when I was telling my husband that I wanted to do less for my second, third, when I was going for my first feedback, he said, well, why do you want to do it? And I said, well, I want someone that, that can advocate for me. And, you know, being a doula now, I think that a lot of women think, you know, and it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of said that way, like a doula is an advocate, which we are, we are an advocate. But it's also outside of our scope to to communicate for you. Yes. Uh, It it truly is. It's outside of a doula's scope to communicate for a couple. So we cannot say, oh, you cannot do that to her or, oh, um, she doesn't want that. She doesn't, she, want, she doesn't want that. Yeah, yeah, you can say, you can remind that couple, hey, you wanted this. Hey, this is something we talked about and you were saying you wanted this versus this or or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it just it's just important to, like Julie said, like we, we can teach you how to advocate for you. And, and we can be there and be on the on the lurch, I guess you want to say, like, and say, like, oh, like we can see that something's happening and we can help that happen in a different way for you, the way we know you want it, but we, we can actually not be your voice and make decisions for you, but we can absolutely be there to educate you and advocate in a way for you. 
So yeah, and yeah. just help you know and help you see what's coming. And even you know sometimes there, it's appropriate to while the provider is trying to do something, you know, you can say, "Hey, we talked about this in our prenatals. Is that still what you want?" And ask the mm-hmm. the the mother, and then she says, "Oh yeah, I don't want that." And then you're not mm-hmm. telling the provider she doesn't want that. She is telling the provider that she doesn't want that. And that makes a huge difference. It does. It really does. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's it's it's a hard, it's a tricky one sometimes, especially when you don't have a supportive provider. But, again, like Julie said, hopefully we are aware as doulas. If you're a doula listening to this, hopefully you are aware and, and becoming familiar with the provider that you're that your client is as well. Okay, that is all of our questions today for this episode. We know it was a lengthy one. We really love answering your questions. And if you love this episode and you now have questions, you guys email us, message us on Facebook or Instagram. We will do more of these. We want to answer your questions. We want to help you. We want to help you feel prepared and ready to go into the world and rock your V-backs. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Submit the form on our website, thevbacklink.com slash share. For more information on all things VBAC, including our VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and our bios, head over to thevbacklink.com. We are excited for you to start your journey of learning and discovery with us.